0: Lord, we thank you for this time to come and hear your word today. We pray that as the word is opened here in John chapter 8, that we'd be challenged uh, with why uh, you had this passage here and that we would walk away uh, from this time uh, different in our thinking and in our actions. So Lord, be with uh, Pastor Tim today that uh, you would give him right words, give him your spirit and power uh, as he preaches today. We thank you for this time that we have gathered We're ready the blessing and encouragement. May we continue to be blessed. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, Didn't ask him to preach. That's probably okay by his family. Um, But thank you for praying for us. We're in John chapter 8. We've been there for a few weeks now. Uh, We took a couple weeks off from Memorial Day and Mother's Day. But we've been discussing in this little narrative at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles what are true, genuine um, virtues of a disciple. Um, Jesus clarifies in the face of religious unbelief what true saving faith is and, and how it lives. Particularly, he did so in three ways. We've given one sermon to each of these three ways. This morning would be the third of three. Uh, What are tests of discipleship, virtues of a disciple? Uh, Certainly, we, we talked about the paternity test, so to speak. In Christ, we've been made one. Again, we've been reconciled into God as our Father. And to the religious unbelief of that hour, he states a reality that's true in their life they are of their father the devil and the lusts of their father they continue to live and they continue to do then we took quite a long time last week investigating all the different mentions of God's word in the text truly if we're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ we have God as our father and we have his word as our guide That's made clear in the text. And this morning, we would just like to discuss a disciple's works. What are the disciples or a disciple's works? If you're truly born again, what will your works be? And he highlights four here, and we'll go through all four here this morning. Let's continue on here before, and then we'll give you those in a simple little outline. And we'll preach through those and be dismissed in prayer. The analogy of sonship and slavery is common in the New Testament. Many of the New Testament writers use it, especially Paul. He preached one who is without Christ is still a slave to sin, and one who is in Christ has been adopted as a son into the family of God. Paul also had sons in the faith. You remember Timothy and Titus. He called them both that, probably because he had met both of them as youth and had led them to Christ and had discipled and mentored them into pastoral relationship. I have spiritual parents in this church. We go back quite a few years. You've been a a tremendous godly influence in my life. I may even call you mom or dad sometimes. Sometimes because I value your spiritual relationship in my life. Jesus was the one to first mention the contrast between son and slave in our passage. He did so in verses 34 to 36. You remember those words from weeks past, don't you? Truly, truly, I say to you that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. It's clear what he's saying, isn't it? He's speaking in a spiritual sense. If you've come to know Christ, you're a son. You take up permanent residency in the family of God. If you're still a slave to sin without Christ, you come and go, as verse 35 teaches, as a slave does in a house. There is no permanent place for you in Christ. Then Jesus expands on the son-slave motif by first introducing Abraham to our little Feast of Tabernacles narrative. He, he tells the religious leaders present that their father is Abraham. He tells them that they're his descendants. They really have no reason to argue with him. They're good with that for sure if they're the biological seed of Abraham, then in their own minds, they're sons of God to be sure. But then Jesus clarifies again by taking an analogy of son and slave to the spiritual level and proclaims in verse 39, if you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. Do the deeds of Abraham. And this is our third test of discipleship. A disciple does the works of God. He does the deeds of Abraham, and we'll discuss that. Yes, they were historically connected to Abraham as Jews, but that connection was not enough to change the way they thought and curb the sin habits in their lives. They'd become sons of the law and of Moses as well. The religious unbelief were moralists, and yet the law didn't even bring a heart transformation. Only when one moves from slavery to sin, as a child of Satan himself, according to Jesus, to sonship, do they truly understand saving faith and a changed life. So as Jesus mentions Abraham, he does so admitting he is of their biological descent. They are of his biological descent. Nothing wrong when involved in a debate to admit where your opponent is right. Then he easily points to Abraham in verse 39 on a spiritual level and he demonstrated his faith by his works. Last year we invested a whole Sunday on what a living faith is compared to a dead faith in the book of Titus. Usually go to the book of James for that, but we did so in the book of Titus, if you remember, last August. August on just one particular Sunday. We compared some of Paul's writing there to James where he writes that a dead faith is moralism, hoping to gain favor with God and a living faith originates with a renewing work of the spirit of God in our hearts. We turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ alone. Then we show our faith is alive by, by the works we do. We are his workmanship, remember, created unto to good works. And Moses tells us Abraham believed God in that wonderful uh, Abrahamic narrative in Genesis chapter 12 to 15. He believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness' sake. And Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1 that all Gentiles are sinners. In Romans chapter 2 that all the descendants of Abraham, who even remained Mosaic law keepers, they're equally unsaved as the Gentile is. And in chapter three, Paul boldly proclaims that the whole world is guilty in sin and separated from God. And then there's this most powerful truth in Romans chapter three and verse 21. If you'll go with me there in introduction to our text this morning, Romans chapter three, and verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? Absolutely not. But by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law And then he gives us a little model of saving faith, beginning in chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due but the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or On the uncircumcised also, for we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then is it credited? While he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? Not while uncircumcised, but circumcised. but while uncircumcised. You remember, Abraham was circumcised quite late in life, long after conversion. Mosaic law hasn't been established for the Jewish boy in eight days. Yet, To be circumcised, it's not established. Verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who not only, who not only are of the circumcision, but also, but who also follow in the steps of faith, of our father Abraham, which he had while wow, circumcised, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the whole world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. I think it's pretty clear there. We preached through Romans for a whole year, not long ago. You can go back and study those notes on your own. But this passage clarifies, really, the difference between spiritual slavery and sonship. So well that even using, without even using the words, there's a model of saving faith we read about in chapter 4. Abraham has a living faith, a faith demonstrated by his works. One of them being the ability to believe the announcement Later on in the text in Romans chapter 4 that recounts Moses' story of the three visitors coming and announcing to Abraham and his wife Sarah that they would bear a son. He believes that. There are more to be sure, but Jesus desires the Jews of our passage to know back in John 8 that they are only true sons when they have the faith of their father Abraham. And until they do, spiritually, they're illegitimate children and still slaves. So what are the works of Abraham? What are the works of saving faith? What are the works of a true disciple that are mentioned here in verse 39 that Jesus tells us? Well, we've been able to be sons, right? Remember John chapter one and verse number 12? Very familiar verse to all of us. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God and God indeed. Right? We have been enabled through our spiritual transformation, our born-again experience by the will of God to do the very will of God and the works of God. A son by faith is a true disciple and the general disciple will do these works. And the first work that we find here is in verse 42. The labor of love. The labor of love. Jesus says here in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come of my own initiative, but but he sent me. If your father was Abraham's father in a spiritual sense, then you would love me. Jesus simply concludes that if you had God as your father, you would decidedly and exclusively love Jesus above all, with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, unless you love me more than father and mother, brother and sister, you can have no part with me. For a true disciple, unfeigned, loyal, prioritized love for Jesus is a matter of fact and the fact of the matter. It's easy for a genuine believer to love Jesus. And this love is clearly seen by his family, by his church family and how he speaks or she speaks and lives. Jesus did say, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Our same writer in 1 John 5, in 2 John 6 defined what love is. And it's a simple Simple definition there, love is the keeping of God's commandments. This love is of divine origin and enacted upon our hearts by the Spirit of God, therefore making it an undeniable passion. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4, same author tells us. For the religious unbelief at hand, well, they're trying to kill Jesus, even as moralists. Moralists we trying to have him illegally arrested, even as chief legalists. They were still slaves to sin. So if you have a passion for living and it's moral, but not by nature loving, your life is not changed and you do not understand the work of love, the labor of love that is only done in Christ Jesus. You may have the pedigree. You may have the education. You may easily be placed in the moralist category. But Jesus knew what they were thinking before they spoke. And he knew their intentions of their hearts were only evil continually. But true disciples, those who love God in Christ, they love like Abraham loved And he loved Jesus as if he was in his presence, his present every day, even thousands of years before Christ was incarnated. Remember what Jesus told doubting Thomas, blessed are those who have seen, not seen, but yet believe. Well, for Abraham and for us, Having never laid eyes on physical Jesus, we love him with a genuine love because he has loved us with an everlasting love. As disciples, how do we just, how do people know that we love Jesus? Obvious in the text is that our love for Jesus is clearly seen and put on display for others to see and understand and to know. I see how all you engaged and now married couples love each other. You post, you walk, you travel with, and for sure, sometimes you stare. Even with a distracted smile while I'm talking to you personally, you're looking at your fiance or your newlywed across the lobby of the church. With that big old love smile. How do we love one who has loved us with an everlasting love? We speak his name, for it is a name above all names. We live his life, for it is a life above all lives to be lived. His praise is upon our lips because he has given us a new song in our hearts. His joy is in our eyes because his cleansing has been realized in our souls. Do you love Jesus supremely? And how do people know that you do? Rough week this last week for me personally, right? You guys all know I'm kind of given to melancholy kind of guy. Pastor Kent knew I was having a rough week. so, So he sent me this song, To encourage me. He's got that gift. Right? He's probably done that to you. I I in turn sent that song to a handful of you for your encouragement. And he put it at the bottom of the text. He said, Sing this song so loud they can hear you from the back of the room, Pastor Tim. So I played it. And uh, it was just truly about a lot of wonderful things, and in part, and very particularly our love for Christ and his love for us. And it was just a song I played throughout the rest of the week. As a matter of fact, I don't know, sometimes when I pull up to stoplights or intersections and the music I hear coming from other cars, when they have all four windows rolled down, it's not necessarily uplifting, if you know what I'm saying. (laughs) Right? But I'll leave my radio off, right? Right? So what I did was all week long, I just rolled down all four windows. The weather was finally nice. And I played this song. And I played it really loudly. Like it was all the way up, right? And I'm on purpose looking out my window saying, yeah, what do you think? You know, this is good. And they're looking at me like, what in the world is that strange sound? It's glorious. It's glorious. I love Jesus. Can't you tell? Right? I even got out of my car one time to make a delivery to someone's house. Wolf or when I left my door open so my speaker on the door would even like broadcast more so more people can hear. Yeah, I'm not ashamed. This Jesus saved me. This Jesus uniquely has this week encouraged me. I don't know. If God were your father, you would love me. What does that mean? What does that look like? Another work of Abraham and of all true disciples is we welcome his messengers. We love and we welcome God's messengers. Abraham had some really unique experience with that, didn't he? You remember the story of Genesis 18? Abraham had received by faith some really unique messengers in his day. These three men came to his tent, and as soon as they had arrived, he knew who they were. He, he certainly knew who one of them was. This is the angel of the Lord, this is a pre incarnate form of Jesus Christ himself along with two angels and he, he, he bows down, he gets up, he runs into the kitchen and he says, "Need some dough and bake some fresh bread. We have guests and they're staying for dinner. And she does. And they had a message for him. Because he was a true believer, the righteousness of God had been accounted to him because of his faith in Christ. He believed that message from that messenger. We all know that Jesus is the messenger of God. He's the very narration of God to you and to me. John chapter one tells us all that the father has given him to teach. He has delivered that message to us and it is received by those of the faith. All that the father has given him as sons and daughters by faith, have and will come to him. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice as their messenger. And I know them because they follow me. And nothing or no one can remove them from the protection of their father. True disciples listen to the messengers of God. As saved souls, aren't you glad for the soul who messaged the good news of Jesus Christ to you? Think of that at the beginning of your faith. Ephesians 6.15, Paul reminds us that all of our feet are to be fitted, having received the message of the gospel of peace with readiness to share that same gospel. Pastor teachers are commanded to preach the word. Teachers commanded are to be careful in their preparation for teaching of the word and oh, so careful in their delivery. But as a true disciple, do you long to hear from the messengers of God's word in this local church? That's how God's designed it for today. So much out there here, so much out there here, right? Podcast, sermon, free class, more sermons, more sermons. There's so much out there here, people don't feel like they get much in their local churches anymore. There's so much out there here, Christianity's become nothing more than a consumer religion. It's all about get, 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 get. I get, I get, I get. I've got to get fed. I've got to get fed more. And then when they come to church and they hear a not as creative sermon from their own pastors or teachers, they say, I'm just not getting fed. And since when is ever worship about getting anything? But Part of worship is the hearing of God's word from the messengers of God, and and this local church is where God's placed us. It's a great delight for me to sit in your classrooms and hear you teach. It's an exclusive delight for me to sit in those seats and hear men of God preach. These are the messages of God for us, for here and for now. And I believe that's to be enough. Everything Other than that, or added to that, maybe should be whipped cream on top of the cake or the the stem on the top of the cherry on top of the cake that's three-layered with thick icing. Maybe the creme de la creme for us as true disciples is being satisfied with the messengers of God that he's given us and receiving them well. And you do. And by God's grace, we will. So certainly first in our local church, and I know we all, including me, enjoy those preachings and teachings we get from those outside our local church, but are you a disciple in this dispensation in the local church who longs to worship under the hearing and teaching of God's word from gifted people in our assembly? Genuine disciples love the message of God to be sure, but they welcome the messengers of that word with open arms and hearts. They, they ready themselves to hear and then to do so that they would be blessed in their deeds. So yes, genuine disciples do the labor of love. They welcome the messengers of God. And the third work here, the third effort of a true disciple is, is to be excited about our hope is to be excited about our hope. Look at verse number 56 together in our text. John chapter 8. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he, and he saw it. Fascinating language. He saw it and was what? He was glad. Two times in a short verse... A reference to eyesight, we know spiritual eyesight, gifted to him by faith, and two references to happiness or, or gladness or, or rejoicing. Abraham rejoiced by faith to see the day of Jesus. And he did. He believed that it was real, though it was thousands of years yet to come to fruition. Jesus was as real by faith to Abraham as if Jesus was with Abraham in person. This word rejoice, it's fascinating. I'll just rifle through a number of texts here then go back and briefly explain what it means to be expectant of Jesus' day as a true disciple. But Jesus... Uh, Excuse me, Mary used this when she was told by the angel that she would be with child of the Savior. In the great Magnificat, same word. Mary rejoiced in God her Savior. It's used in Acts 16.34. Remember the Philippian jailer and his family when they got saved? They go home, they have dinner, they're breaking bread together, and he sat down with his newly saved family, and they rejoiced together. A household of faith had been founded. It's used by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 8, in that great doxology of our, uh, that hymn of our faith, really, of our saving faith that God has given to us. In verses 1 through 11, we rejoice with exceeding joy for the redemption and salvation we have in Christ that God's reserved for us in heaven forever. Paul uses the same word in 1 Thessalonians 2, we're at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, both He and those who are His crown and rejoicing would enjoy the presence of Christ in the clouds together as a family of God. Most notably, it's used in Revelation 19 when all of us sit together, saints from all four corners of the earth, and enjoy dinner at the marriage supper of the lamb with the lamb himself and around that table will be a great exceeding joy. The word actually means to be so happy you leap forward. Have you ever been that happy? Right? On a much more mundane note, you know, I can remember Father's Day, I think 2016, took a TV out to our backyard, had a wireless receiver. It was game seven right? Cavaliers versus that team from San Francisco, right? Best point guard in human history, probably. We were down 3-1. We came back to tie it 3-3. No team had ever done this in the finals. And it's Father's Day, and we're watching. Had a great feast, as you always should do on Father's Day. We get down to the last two minutes of the game, and I'm that, I've got that chronic Cleveland sports fan pain in my heart. There's going to be some way we're going to find to lose this game. <laughs> Kyrie hits the big shot. Remember? So my goodness, we're up four. And I'm doing shot clock analysis. And I'm doing all these things that juvenile coaches like me do. And, and, um, and then, wow, they go down. And, uh-oh, Kevin Love's stuck on Stephen Curry. 6'10 on 6'1 and boy, Stephen's quick and, and he can shoot and all of a sudden right? Kevin Love's feet start to move really fast and quick and he, he locks down the best shooter in the NBA. He sh- throws up this foolish shot and he misses and Cavs get the rebound and oh my goodness we're up four with just seconds left and one shot even though a three-pointer unfouled cannot win the game and they shoot and they miss and all I can remember there was this spontaneous combustion having been a Cleveland sports fan that never wins anything right it seems I just leapt forward out of my chair and all I did was made like an airplane I'm glad my kids did not get it on video because they were just doing the same thing. I ran in circles around my backyard like this <laughs> until I couldn't run anymore. It's like I couldn't believe it. It's complete delirium. I leapt forward with joy, right? And, and that's just an NBA championship. That's all it was. That's all it was. But Jesus says of Abraham, he leapt forward to see my day. The day of my incarnation. The day of my living on this earth. A little over three years. The day of my crucifixion and my atonement. The day of my burial. The day of my resurrection. The day of my ascension. And the day of my coming again. Abraham couldn't wait to get there. That's the idea of excitement here. He rejoiced to see my day. Wasn't that true of Job as well? He said, for I know that my redeemer liveth, liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. David says very similar things in his messianic psalm. And Job says, I will see him for myself. And and mine eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Fix your eyes upon the coming king, for it will make you strong. Have you seen? Are you leaping forward? Are you waiting with the greatest of anticipations to hear that trumpet sound and the voice of that archangel shout? Is it tangible to you? Are we ready to see his day? Saving faith does. True disciples do. The hope of that glorious noise of that trumpet and that shout should deafen any other worldly noise, good or wicked, away from us. It should distract us unto hope. If Jesus comes today, then just a a brief few years, a thousand years, reigning side by side, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, the fourth and final work as we conclude this morning is the work of mission. Work of love, work of receiving his messengers, the labor of disciplining ourselves unto hope, the work of mission. If you remember, it was Jesus that first mentioned that the Jewish leaders were descendants of Abraham in verse 37. And with that mention, we find out with our last work that Jesus was truly seeking to provoke the Jewish leader's thoughts about what Moses had written about Abraham. Not just nationally and politically or biologically, but especially spiritually, but also missionally. Possibly the early mention of Abraham in this passage following the mention of slavery would have truly stroked the embers of envy and jealousy the religious leaders had towards Jesus. Why? Remember what we discussed in Romans a bit earlier? Go back with me to that text in Romans chapter four. Maybe you kept your finger there out of curiosity. And we'll read here in verse 16. Maybe, maybe Jesus mentions Abraham early so that the religious leaders would have a while during Jesus's debate with them to contemplate all that Moses had written about Abraham. They knew the law. They knew well. The works and the fruit of the works of Abraham as a saved person would echo throughout all of human history unto salvation purposes. What does Paul say in verse 16 of Romans 4? For this reason, it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. Descendants of who? Abraham. Not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of who? Father of all of us. As it is written, "A father of many nations have I made of you in the presence of him who who he believed even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist in hope against hope he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken so so shall your descendants be without becoming weak in faith he contemplated his own body not as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. The Abrahamic covenant was not a promise that was politically or biologically based. It was a spiritual announcement of blessing. And it was an unconditional covenant. We are the Jews and Gentiles of Abraham's faith. We were gifted to repent and believe and it was counted unto us for righteousness. Now with this faith, the nations of the world continue to be blessed. The same Jesus that we're to to love and the same Jesus that we're to receive, the same Jesus that we're to look forward to seeing, the same Jesus has a message for us to declare throughout the whole world. Go into all the world and make disciples, Jesus said. You, in this time, are the preachers and teachers of the faith of Abraham. And all the nations of the world are to be blessed through your messaging. Because the faith of Abraham is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Missions is a work of genuine saving faith. It's the clarion call of all of our lives to those around us, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our leisure places, and to the regions beyond us. It's the timeless work of missions. That's the work of Father Abraham, really. His faith in Christ is the faith we we carry to the world so that all the nations of the world would be blessed. The Thessalonian church got this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, after they had received the gospel, they became followers of Paul, and then they became models of saving faith for them. And that when Paul was going to the regions around this church trying to plant more churches, he didn't have any work to do because from the Thessalonian town or city, from that church sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Thessalonica, but throughout all of Macedonia, throughout all of Achaia, They were were doing their disciple-making work. Saving faith has a mission. It's personal to each one of us. It's corporate to our church. And then it's interdependent from church to church as we rally together with like-minded places and people. And we arm in arm bless the world with this message together. Maybe there's some kids among us today that would beg God to win one of their buddies in the neighborhood to Christ this summer. Who among us would be willing to reinvestigate their spiritual gifting? in order to see if the Lord has spiritually equipped you to to plant a church, pastor a church, pioneer the gospel work on foreign soil? Who among us this morning would love to embrace the function of assisting in the oversight of the development of this biblical gospel and global effort, which all the nations of the world will be blessed right out of Grace Church of Mentor? Do you have the faith of Abraham? Do you really believe that this promise made of our creator to Abraham in a spiritual sense would really be global in its influence? And do you really believe that we're part of that? True disciples do. Just as much, just as much as the other three works or labors of true discipleship that we've studied this morning, we are enraptured with a mission. The local church is not a saving agency. Jesus saves. The local church is a sending agency. In the westernized church, the local church has become a saving agency because it's been so consumer-driven. We're inviting people in to give them what they want. Remember, it's all about getting, not giving, right? No, the local church was never meant to be invited to so that you could hear the gospel, so that you could be sent out. The local church should be full of people whose feet are shod with the gospel of peace, the preparation of the gospel of peace, who go, who go, who go, who go, who go, and they keep going, and they keep going, and then Jesus builds his church, and then more people can be equipped to do what? To go, and go, every one of you, in God's way and in God's time, according to God's gifting. Recall with me that Jesus was the one sent of God in our passage, wasn't he? Recall with me Paul's wording of this greatest divine missions trip of all time is explained in Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 through 6. Who Jesus Christ thought it not robbery to be equal with God made himself of no reputation, right? And he left the embattlements of heaven to go where? To be made in the form of a man, thinking it not robbery to be equal with God. And he became obedient to the death of the cross, If we long to love Jesus and we long to embrace his messengers and we long to see him, then we have a message to take to the world of him through this place together until we see him in the clouds. And oh, help us God to do just that. You know, as I was... Um, thinking about all these aspects of what a true disciple is. There's more. There's just four in this text, but via the works, the deeds of Abraham. But I got to thinking about, has that, has that text where Jesus, you know, all the people that are standing before Jesus on judgment day, Lord, I've, I've preached in your name. I've cast out devils in your name. I've healed in your name. I've done all these things in your name. And Jesus kind of looks at them and says What? depart from me. I never knew you. So like, this would be like me going to Governor DeWine's home today, right? Walking up, knocking on the door. And uh, he opens the door and it's like, hey, I know where you went to school. I know your wife's name. I know your kids' names. I know your grandkids' names. I know all the positions you stand for and all the ones you don't. I know you really, really, really well. Invite me and let's have tea. Burger. Let's have a burger. And what's he going to say? Probably very kindly or probably surprisingly, I, I would love you, I would love to, but I don't, I don't know you. There's going to be many, many, many moralists who did a lot of things in God's name who God doesn't know. How do we know that we'll be known of God by listening to the words of his son as to what the works of Abraham are? You embrace these four and more. You'll know him as he knows you. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for these very clear descriptions of what the works of saving faith are, the works of true disciples are. I draw the circle around my own heart, my own self. I pray, Lord, that I would do the proper examination in relationship to these things. And I pray the same for our sweet saints here, our wonderful, loving, gracious church family. I pray that we would know these truths and live them so that through us all the nations of the world would be blessed as you have promised to do through the saving faith of our father Abraham. In Christ's name we pray.